Hi there. Welcome to the Kelly Cotrera podcast. Robin Pilkey, chair of the Toronto District School Board, will join us with the specifics on a phone survey starting tomorrow. They're trying to determine if you're sending your kids back to the classroom this fall. Doug Stevens, the retail prophet, will give us insight into the gaining popularity of buy now, pay later e-commerce transactions. Did you know that COVID-19 long haulers are complaining about hair loss? We'll get to the root of that. And 640 Toronto astronomy expert Paul Delaney highlights what to have an eye for over the next few nights. Okay, let's get down to business and why we've invited you on the show, Robin. We've uh, heard that the Toronto District School Board is going to start conducting a survey this week. What's the survey all about? So the plans, uh, obviously, 10 days ago, the government provided the direction that we have to take for school reopening. We've had a lot of, there's been a lot of talk and a lot of feedback in the last week. But we are, uh, school does start on September 8th, and we do need to know which students are going to be in the building and which students plan to be on remote learning. So this survey, pre-registration survey, will start going out tomorrow, and parents will be asked, um, is your child coming back to school or is your child doing remote learning? Okay, There's and this survey, it's, it's a phone survey, correct? It is a phone survey because we do have contact information and we do need to know specific students. So unlike other things where we would send it out and people would choose to respond, we actually need to know specific students. Is your student coming back? And if you have three kids in our system, you will be called three, time, three times. For each, one How will you know student. what child it's for then? Well, because it's tied into your phone number and your... Um, and your Ontario education number. So Okay, but is is uh, this a robocall? It is a robocall. Okay, so if I've got three kids in school, but they're mm-hmm. in different they're in the Toronto District School Board, but they're in like one a couple are in elementary and there's one in high school, how will I know the difference? How will I know which survey I'm doing okay, when I get the, the robocall? Call, when you listen to it, we'll say your child in who is going into grade twelve. Oh, perfect. Okay. So, so it's yeah, pretty so specific. It's very specific. We, and uh, it will be in, it's available in a number of languages and it's available online in a number of languages. So okay, so if, if it's available call, in, if it's, a, sorry, Robin, just to interrupt, but if it's available in a number of languages, how does the school board know which language to robocall you in? So, sorry, I, I, I made a, I've misspoken. The robocall okay. is in English, but there is an opportunity that they, there, if you go online, you could do it in various different languages. And the part of the robocall is that you can go online and tell you where to go do that. So, um, we're also sending something out in, in, uh, that's coming out today that's kind of explaining to people to expect these calls. They're going to call three times. So, you know, many people don't answer the phone if it says, if they don't know who it is. So uh, it's explaining how that's going to work, what you have to do, why you need to do it, um, and how you can access it in different languages if you don't want to do it through the phone. Okay, so I get a call, the first call, and I say, oh, it's going to be a telemarketer. I don't recognize the number. What happens after that, Robin? Walk me through it. So what ha- would happen after that is that you, uh, you wouldn't pick it up, so the call would drop. Uh, they will call back two more times, hopefully, and then you realize you've received other information that says, oh, it says TDSB, I should answer that. Right. Um, will they call you, back in t- two more times right away, or will they give uh, two more tries later? Uh, I'm not sure about the timing, actually, in between. I do know that okay. it will call back three times. Um, at that point, if you haven't responded, uh, the the individual, your local school will receive a list of who they haven't heard from, and when school when more staff come back into school in the next few weeks, they will start to phone you again about this. Um, because we do need to know it, it. It has a large impact on local school planning if we don't know how many kids to expect in the building. Uh, okay, so, so it's let's incredibly get incredibly important. 
I bet. Let's get into the specifics of uh, the questions themselves. There'll be a robocall. It will ask, it'll say, you know, your child is in grade three. They're going into grade four. Um, And then they'll go through a series of two questions. And what are those questions? Okay. So actually there's two. The first question is going to be, with the normal class size model, will your child be returning to school? Or press one if your child... um, will return under this model, like a full day of learning? Or would you um, say, no, my child will not return to school and will expect remote learning? The second question is, um, if there was a school day model with smaller class sizes, because we have, you know, there's a lot of information coming out. We've talked to the government numerous times and expressed our concerns about the size of the class sizes, especially in elementary school. Uh, Toronto Public Health has come out about this as well, as most people heard last week. So we've also asked the question, if the class size was smaller, would you be coming back to school? Yes or no? So okay. uh, we don't know if that's going to happen, but, you know, we want to understand if that is a big effect on people's decisions. So is the goal of, of the survey to tweak things um, so that, you know, you are ready for the school year? Is it about the amount of teachers you need back? What is the, the goal? So the goal is that... Uh, if, if we need to if we need to adjust class sizes at the in the individual school level, for example, if your child is doing, uh, you know, we need to do scheduling. We're going to quadmasters and secondary school, for example. We need to know, we need to be able to say how many kids are going to be showing up during the day, how many kids are doing remote learning, because we're not actually um, we're matching kind of remote learning teachers with kids who are doing remote learning. You may not, uh, if you decide that you're going to remote learning, you may not be getting a teacher from your, your local school. You may be getting a teacher who has gathered up. We've assigned, you know, a certain number of third graders to a specific teacher who's operating remotely online. So it may not be your local teacher anymore or your local school. How so are you to be selecting the, the, the teacher that uh, teaches remote classes? Because I know a lot of teachers were struggling. Will you be... Uh, just looking for those so teachers. It, have you have you surveyed your teachers saying, "Hey, who has a good who has a good grasp on remote learning, um, and would you like to teach remotely?" Uh, the first off, teachers who say that who have told us that who tell us there's a staff survey going out as well. Teachers who tell us that they cannot return to school because they are immune compromised or something like that. If they have a health reason, they can't return to school. Those teachers uh, will be teaching remote learning. Will they get extra training? Before uh, the class uh, av- school year. There's been training available, you know, continuously since we've gone this route. So mm-hmm. uh, many, te- many, many teachers have taken advantage of that. Uh, the expectations are uh, uh, much more um, clear, I think, through this. We're not in the reactionary mode that we were at uh, in March. Uh, so the expectations are different. And yes, there's been a lot of training available to teachers. Um, the, ex- the other thing is we need to be prepared if this, go, this whole thing goes south, then we all go back to remote learning. So, mm-hmm. you know, we you know, teachers need to be prepared for that as well. If in the case that all of a sudden we're all staying home again. Um, you know, how it worked in March uh, was a shock to everybody, the system. But, you know, we all understand now this is a possibility and we need to be prepared for that as well. Will you make the, the training mandatory for teachers? Uh, we've made it uh, available. At, at as much as we can under the collective agreement. And I think most teachers have taken advantage of it. They, I, you know, the teachers I know, they want to be successful and they want to make sure their kids learn things and it, whatever mode of teaching it is. So I feel confident that many, you know, the majority of teachers have taken advantage of this uh, and are concerned about this. They, I've 
honestly believe that teachers want to do a great job and they'll do what they need to do. So the, the survey that you're starting tomorrow, the robocall survey, uh, and then the online component, how long will the survey take? To do or how long will it be open? W- will it be open for? Uh, it, it should be finished by August 17th. Okay. I mean, and we're coming will in, that do- will be three weeks before school starts. We need to make, you know, we need a line in the sand at some point. Of course. And will you be taking this information to the government? Of course. <laughs> yes. Are you, I mean, are you hoping that this will result in more funding? We would like it. Well, we've hoped that the conversation we've, we had up till now would result in more funding. Like this shouldn't be a surprise to anybody how this if, you know, that parents are concerned about the size of the cohorts and, and you know, public health is concerned about the size of the cohorts and the school board is concerned about that. This, this should not be a surprise. We've had several conversations directly, our staff with the government. Uh, we haven't heard back yet, but... Um, about our concerns. I mean, there are still areas of Toronto that have COVID outbreaks. We're, we're concerned about those ones, you know, that we need to be putting extra staffing there. The government has provided some money for that, but it's very minimal. I think it's $30 million for teachers across the province, which is the equivalent to about 300 teachers. And you've got our the biggest school board. It's usually 12%, so we would get right. 35 people. <laughs> oh, geez. So you've got the biggest school so have, board in, in the province, yeah. and, and you if, if classes... Do return to where we they were pre-pandemic. Schools. Wow. Um, how big would those classes be if we return to normal? So we, if, if we go in the normal, uh, you know, normal, uh, class sizes are expected to be whatever has previously been agreed. So for grades one to three, that would be 20 students per class. Grades uh, four to eight, it's an average of 20, 24.5 students. So some classes might be smaller, some might be larger. Kindergarten, it's around 30 students, and that's a lot for, for little kids, right? Especially when you're looking at the recommended cohorts of 15 for that age group. Robin, uh, I know that you, you've got this survey uh, starting tomorrow, and, and the goal is to, you know, be able to organize so that you're ready for, for the school year, whatever shape that takes. Uh, and parents can opt out, and they can, they can opt to have online learning at home. Do you have any anecdotal um you know, evidence to to give us a, an idea of where parents are that you're talking to that are calling the TDSB um, as far as sending their kids back. How many are, are planning to keep them at home? How many people are planning to send them back? Do you have a, an idea? I don't have an idea. I, I mean, I've received a lot of email from people concerned about the size of the cohorts, especially in elementary school. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I've received two emails that have said it's fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, but I've received hundreds and hundreds, and I know this is other trustees as well, hundreds and hundreds have said, you know, this is not appropriate. And, you know, I believe uh, somebody, st- there was a, a survey that went out, and I'm not sure what the numbers that that survey has hit, but it's in the tens of thousands of people talking about this. So I think it's very clear that there are a lot of concerns about this. Uh, I think when Toronto Public Health came out last week and said they were concerned, that really in Toronto in particular, lit a fire to people and said, okay, like, hold on a second. Um, how are we doing this? And, and, you know, our goal is always about safety for students and staff. So we are doing as many mitigating things that we can, but uh, at some point, the class size does make a difference. If people want to do the survey online, where do they go? They go to our main webpage and there'll be a link from there to the survey. All right. Well, Robin, I really thank you for uh, getting us up to speed on what's going on and uh, 
It's going to be an interesting year, uh, to say the least. But this this to Ford government has a repu- <laughs> has a reputation for, uh, you know, uh, putting their foot down and saying this is the way it's going to be and then walking it back. So how hopeful are you that the government will look at the results of your survey and uh, listen to what the TDSB is uh, is saying? Um, I, I'm uh, hopeful that the government will listen to what parents are saying and what uh, the public is saying, because the public is talking about this and is concerned and the parents are concerned. And I think that's who the government should be listening to. All right, Robin, thank you very much for your time. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me again. Good to have you on. Robin Pilkey is chair of the Toronto District School Board. Um, so Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca is proposing a delay in the start of the school year until they are able to get the money in place to lower class sizes. I'm wondering how many people would be up for that delay. I'm wondering if you are comfortable sending your kids back to school, because clearly when the biggest school board in the province is asking that question so close to the school year, they have to be concerned. And I'm wondering if you share that concern. So let's get to the phones at 416-870-6400. Let's see where you're at. Hey, Anthony in Toronto, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. It's a bad reception in this area, so hopefully I don't lose you guys. My daughter is going into grade five in September. Um, I would prefer, there's no bulletproof plan by the government. Nothing's going to be 100%. I would prefer smaller classes, 15. That would make me feel a little bit better. I'm a single dad, so I only have to answer to myself. There's no one else to, to talk about, so it's my own decision to make. Uh, usually, you know, in a marriage, normal marriage, right? It's 50-50 decision. I'm they need the socialization. The I, I believe sick kids—that's where we put our children back. I'm going to go with that advice. And unfortunately, I hate to say this, but we have to see what happens. It's going to take a week or two to see how it goes. You know what I mean? But when the TDSB calls you, will you be saying no? You'd be more comfortable with a smaller class size. I'm going to send her as is, but yes, I would be if, 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 if I have an option. If there's a choice yep. between 30, or excuse me, 28 kids and 15, I would go with 15 because grade they still. Oh, we are losing you, Anthony. You, you warned us here. Yeah. You're in the worst reception zone, but I appreciate your call. I think we, we know where you're coming from, and I appreciate it. Hey, John in Toronto, hopefully you're in a better area for reception. I think I will be. <laughs> so uh, my situation is uh, a little different. I've got two kids in a private system and one kid in a public system. So I've seen both sides as to how they're handling the situation. Uh, I am not comfortable sending my, my, my 10-year-old to the public system with class sizes of 30. But I think the problem goes deeper than that. It's not just a matter of... Uh, these schools are, are um, underpopulated. All of these um, local uh, public schools, uh, grade schools I'm talking about now, there's probably 200, 250 kids when the school's built for a thousand kids. So there's plenty of room to space them out. The issue becomes now you need more teachers uh, to accommodate uh, the spacing and to accommodate two classes instead of one. I think that's where the problem lies. I don't think this issue with the teachers uh, contracts was resolved pre COVID. And I think they're just using our kids as pawns. And I don't believe oh. I'm getting off topic. I, I think it's directly connected to what the issue is. I know okay, so it's all it's about money. It's about it's about, um, you know, the wrangling with the government. But w- right. would you are you sending your kid back to school or not? Uh, I am not sending my kid back to school just because I see another model where they're yeah. making it work. And I unfortunately can't send my kid. 
kid there because uh, the uh, he's too young still. It doesn't start at his age level. And, Are you talking about uh, private school? The private system, yeah. They yeah, it's expensive, money. eh? How do I don't know how parents deal. That it's, is a big choice I'm to make. A, I'm I'm a son of an immigrant. Uh, I, it's not it's not easy. Yes, it's a lot of money, but that's a decision that my wife and I had to make for the benefit mm-hmm. of kids. Again, I'm going off a little topic here. It's more than just you know the situation we're going through now. It's the education level. Uh, right. That's the reason why we made that choice. But yeah, I, I I hear what you're saying, John. I, I'm going to get you get over to Shane because you are getting a bit off topic. But I appreciate uh, you know all the different veins you're going down because at the end of the day, this is about money. Make no mistake about it. Because we, if you want a smaller class size, you have to find you know you have to pay for more teachers, and teachers are expensive. Hey, Shane, welcome to the show. Hey, Kelly. Uh, so I was saying to Chris, I mean, uh, one daughter is going into grade 11 this year. The other is going into grade eight. The grade eight, we're not so concerned about. It's the uh, it's the older daughter. And I oh, think okay. it's, it's got nothing to do with what the government or what the government's plan is or not. It's more the fact that we know what our daughter's like and we know that the cafeterias are going to be closed. We know that it's adjacent to a big plaza with a Walmart, a Tim Hortons, a McDonald's, everything. And we know what she's like already. She was like this in grade nine. And the fact is, is that she wanders from school with a group of about 20 or 30 people at lunchtime. We don't know where these kids have been all summer. I I don't know where a single one have been. And the fact is, is it's safe for just to keep her home for the first semester and see what's going on in the school from that point on. And And how is she feeling about that, Shane? You getting some pushback? She's not. Yeah, we we had an argument about it last night. Um, we were actually visiting my mom. My mom said the same thing. Like, just don't send them back. It's not safe. Right. So you're concerned not only about that's that's interesting, Shane, because you're concerned not about what's happening in the classroom. It's about them getting back to some semblance of normalcy and acting like they did pre-pandemic and and gathering in big groups because they're they're all well, at the like, school. When you were in high school, Kelly, what did you do at lunchtime? Oh, I, I'm I'm sure roamed in packs like the rest of the feral children that left the schoolroom. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and and I, you yeah. know, I feel bad for it, but the fact is, is I I need to see that things are going to be safe and the cases aren't going to spike before she goes back. I appreciate the call. Hey, Michael in Toronto, I'm going to let you wrap it up. So TDSB, we just spoke with the chair, Robin Pilkey, about the fact that they're going to be robocalling. Uh, do you feel comfortable sending your kids back to school? Will you be sending your kids back to school as is? Or do you want the class uh, classes smaller? Uh, where do you sit with this in comfort level? Good morning uh, to you, Kelly, and thank you. Uh, I'm not sending my kids back. Uh, I don't feel comfortable. It's not just a point of whether they uh, reduce the class size. There's a variety of issues. First of all, behavior of kids. If we have adults that are... Um, not following all the medical guidelines, how do we expect children to do that in a setting of not having seen their friends for a while, not been Mm -hmm. in that social uh, environment for a while? If you can't get adults to do it right, I'm not blaming kids. And as a parent, and my wife and I both agree, she used to be a teacher, we're not sending them back. Then there's also issues like, why are they not thinking about the ventilation, for example, uh, you know? I, we follow this medical stuff because she switched and she does medical stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get into details as a separate topic, but, but nobody seems to be talking about ventilation even in these schools. 
you know, how does well, it's a big problem. I mean, you just think about the the uh, how you'd have to retrofit those schools. Are they even able to retrofit the schools? It's a, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think that that is such a massive problem. I think they're aware of it. I was reading a story, Michael. I appreciate the call, and and it's it, it echoes what Shane's saying. It's about the kids looking at it like, well, we're back to school and we're back to normal. And it's, you know, how do you trust kids to make the right decision when we're seeing adults can't make the right decision? But I was reading this interesting article about the pandemic and, and the the flu pandemic um, and how we had classes out, out of doors, you know, during that, the Spanish flu pandemic, even here in Toronto, classes were held outside as long as they could. Um, in High Park, they had set up outdoor classrooms is that going to be something we're going to have to think about doing? Because you're right, the ventilation is an issue. The pandemic has given a boost to something called uh, BNPL. It's buy now, pay later transactions in Canada. And they are quickly gaining popularity because they're attracted to both retailers and customers. I hadn't heard of this until I read about it. Uh, the Better Business Bureau is warning that customers should be very careful. And so we brought, uh, we're bringing Dave, uh, Doug Stevens on the show, rather. He's a founder of Retail Profit and a Toronto-based consultant. You've heard Doug on the show before. Doug, welcome to the program. Good to have you on. Great to be here, Kelly. Thank you. So, Doug, I, I mean, I immediately thought of you when I read this story. Um, now, Australia has been doing this for a while. 8% of all their e-commerce purchases have shifted shifted to buy now, pay later uh, transactions. And credit card accounts have been on the decline. So can you talk about, you know, the phenomenon and how long you've been aware of the buy now, pay later transaction model? Sure. So, yeah, interestingly, we, we've seen this movie before and uh, we saw it here in North America during 2008, 2009. During the financial crisis, uh, you may recall that brands like Kmart, for example, which uh, is is now a mere shadow of itself in the U.S., but Kmart actually introduced layaway. Uh, and, and in fact, layaway was a concept that goes back uh, almost 100 years. You know, the, the idea that you can buy something and then pay for it in installments. I think the difference in this case is that we usually associate layaway with larger purchases, things like appliances and furniture, televisions, that sort of thing. But, you know, given the state of the economy, given the state of the retail landscape and certainly the consumer condition today, retailers are now uh, offering this on something as small as a pair of running shoes, you know. So it, I think it really speaks to the level of uh, panic, frankly, in the marketplace among retailers who are looking for any reason or any impetus at all to get consumers to open their wallets and spend. Yeah, one of the things that I thought was interesting is, of course, the pandemic has got us um, buying online more than ever. And I, I wasn't really an online shopper until the pandemic hit. I mean, I was I kind of like I love to touch things. So, I mean, I love that tactile experience. I like to go in. I like to think about things. I like to take my time. Now, you can still do that with online shopping because there's something called a shopping basket or a shopping bag. You just put your hopeful purchases into that bag. But this buy now, pay later model is really great for the retailer because people will then look and say, oh, well, I, I don't need to pay for it all right now. I can pay for it in transactions. So what they're hoping is that with the buy now, pay later uh, model, that most consumers will not just leave things languishing in that shopping bag. Right. Exactly. And, and really what you're doing in theory 
is you are, as a retailer, you're trying to pull purchases from the future into the present. So the assumption here is that, you know, hey, with I think we're at about 11 or 12 percent unemployment in Canada. We have a lot of people out there that are very concerned about their incomes and very much in a wait and see kind of mentality. You know, let's see how the economy fares before I go out and spend all kinds of money. So with programs like this, you're really you're you're saying to that consumer, no, tell you what, make this purchase today, but we'll allow you to pay it off over time. So you're sort of in in a sense, you're kind of mortgaging your future as a retailer. But again, uh, you know, when when retailers are experiencing 50, 60, 70 percent declines in uh, in revenue, uh, they are, they are really pulling out all the stops to try and get people to spend today. Okay, so it does benefit the retailer, but um, the service comes from third-party financial companies. So how much, uh, you know, does it hurt the retailer as far as extra payments? So um, there, there's a, you know, and, and I think that different companies are, are orchestrating these programs differently. But for the most part, what we find is that the company that is offering the credit platform will take a percentage of the initial transaction, and that may be something as small as a couple of percent. And then they will also augment uh, their, uh, their revenue with uh, potential interest charges to consumers, uh, and and penalties for consumers, and it's worth noting that in some cases the penalties can be significant. You know, so if you're buying something that's only a hundred dollars and you miss a payment and you wind up paying a ten dollar penalty, well, you know, you just got a massive surcharge on, on that uh, on that purchase, and you know. I mean, the the bottom line is that as consumers, we have to be very careful of these things. You know, the old adage, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. There's probably a hidden cost in here. And the last thing we want to do when we're financially stressed is, you know, wind up paying uh, $50 for a $30 pair of of running shoes. You know, it just doesn't doesn't make any sense. So I would say, you know, buyer beware in this case, you know, read the fine print uh, because certainly – Retailers are are desperate, and they're going to do what they feel they need to do to make their to make their numbers. Uh, credit companies uh, typically are not uh, offering credit out of the kindness of their hearts, <laughs> so there's a lot of money being made in this. And as consumers, we have to be careful that it's not um, that that we're at least aware of where where that money's being made. Doug, it's always great to have you on. Thank you so much for making sense of this, because for a lot of people, I think it's the first time they're hearing about this buy now, pay later uh, service option when you uh, go online and you you make an e-commerce uh, purchase. And it was I just learned of it this weekend. So I do appreciate you shedding even more light onto the subject for us. My pleasure, indeed. Thanks, Kelly. Have a great day. Cheers. That's Doug Stevens. He's a founder of Retail Profit. And of course, he is a Toronto-based consultant and friend of the program. Uh, star story that caught my attention is uh, about what we are calling COVID long haulers. Have you heard of this, COVID-19 long haulers? These are people that are still suffering COVID symptoms months later. And the the headline that caught my eye was this, survivor's alarm by latest fallout of COVID-19, their hair. Uh, The story goes on to talk about a woman who, uh, about three months after she first got sick with COVID-19, 
her fiance started noticing strands of her hair all over the house. There would just be clumps in the drain after the end of every shower. Each time she brushed, brushed it, more would fall out. She said she was uh, running her fingers through her hair and she would pull out a whole bunch. This is a 26-year-old. Said she was worried that she was going to end up bald. And uh, according to um, posts on several support groups on Facebook, an increasing number of post-COVID sufferers are losing their hair. And I understand that this phenomenon actually has a name. Here to talk about it, Dr. Jeff Donovan, who's president of the Canadian Hair Loss Foundation. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for being here. So, um this is actually a phenomena that is not, it's not always associated with COVID-19. It's associated with a, a, a major illness or trauma that you might have suffered. Can you tell, tell us a little bit about it? That's right. Anytime the body feels a stress, whether it's an infection or, or emotional stress or the stress of weight loss or the stress of having a thyroid disease, the body protects itself by shedding hair and it doesn't happen immediately after the body feels the stress. It always happens about two to three months later. And that's why we're seeing this timing with COVID patients. You, When you first heard about COVID in the winter, you actually started to uh, take note and think that, that this actually would, people would start to come in complaining of hair loss um, because this happened during the Spanish flu pandemic. People noticed that they were losing their hair about three months into the pandemic, correct? Absolutely. It's, it's part of being a hair loss dermatologist. We have this phenomenon. And so when COVID hit North America in February, March, you just do the math and that puts us sort of June, July, where patients are going to be starting to notice this phenomenon and sure enough, it, it, it rang true. And uh, that's the timing of this phenomenon. Okay, so how many complaints are you hearing? How, how much has the, uh, the complaint of, of uh, losing hair increased where you work? It's actually gone up a lot. It's, it's a very frequent event every day. The challenge is figuring out, is the patient experiencing hair loss from the COVID-19 infection? Are they experiencing hair loss from the stress of being sick or are they experiencing hair loss from some other phenomenon? So my, my job is to sort it all out. But certainly calls and consultations about hair shedding are very high right now. Is it happening more with women or men? Because I would imagine that men, if they start to lose their hair, they're not going to be as alarmed. They might say, well, I guess this happens to guys at a certain age. Whereas, uh, you know, I notice when I'm washing my hair, I got a lot of hair. It's quite long. If I start to lose it when I'm showering, I take note. It's a great question, Kelly. And it is more women. And we do know that telogen effluvium is often more noticeable in women, perhaps because of the long hair. Um, the more frequently someone shampoos the hair, they're le the less they're going to notice the hair going down the drain and in their, in their brush. Uh, but it is more women, and that's something we see universally with this phenomenon of hair shedding. So you just mentioned the uh, name, let's see if I don't butcher it, Telogen effluvium. Uh, can you tell us exactly what's going on in the body to, during this actual shedding of, of hair and what leads up to it. That's right. And really this, this phenomenon of telogen effluvium is uh, a phenomenon where 
the hair falls out two to three months after any kind of a trigger. And it's really a reflection of what happens normally. On our scalps, hair grows for three, four, five years. And then a strand decides that now is the time to fall out. And it doesn't just fall out tomorrow after making that decision. It has to spend two months, three months in this preparatory phase before it finally falls out of the scalp onto the brush or down the drain. And so what we see when we have some kind of trigger, uh, whether it's COVID or stress or or a severe diet, is many hairs on the scalp say, you know what, I think now is the time to shed. We have to protect the other organs of the body, the heart, the lungs, the liver. I think now is the time to focus on the internal organs and make sure everybody's safe in there. And now is not the time to grow hair and focus on growing hair. So let's shed. So many hairs on the scalp decide to shed. And once they make that decision, they still have to spend that two months in the preparatory phase. They're not allowed to just fall out tomorrow. And that's why we get this delay. But how does hair growth affect, you know, body organs? Like, why would hair decide, okay, well, we have to take care of our internal organs? What's what's the connection there? What is hair um, taking? Nutrients from those body organs? Where's the competition there? Yeah, and we don't understand it all, but we know physiologically that um, hair grows when, when situations are optimal. And when situations are not optimal, the hair sheds. And, you know, that could be because the hair decides that the body decides that hair comes second because uh, of, of, of what's needed to protect the, the rest of the body. We don't understand it all. But in situations like this with severe infections uh, and other events in the body, the hair sort of takes second place. And uh, that's why it sheds. Fortunately, it Can comes you... back. Yeah. Fortunately, it comes back several months later. But the the hair takes second place. Can you uh, lose hair if you're not sick, but you're just stressed out by the pandemic? Are you finding that that's happening? You sure can. And in fact, that's probably the most common reason that patients uh, who contact our office are losing hair. This is an extremely stressful time for human beings around the world. There's financial loss. There's isolation. There's an enormous numbers of, of stressors. And we know that stress causes hair loss, and it causes the exact same type of hair loss as being sick with COVID-19. And so the, the trick is to figure out which one is causing it in this particular patient. It, you know, I, I remember getting, being devastated. I don't know a woman that hasn't been devastated, probably as a young, young girl after a haircut. And it's like, you always hear, don't worry, it'll grow back. Um, it's devastating to lose hair, especially for women. Uh, it's very tough. Men, I get it. It's tough for you as well. But uh, for women, it, it's very tough. So how do you, you can resolve the issue of hair loss. How do you do that? And how do you, uh, I guess, speed up the process of it growing back? Yeah, it's a great question. And we can't do a lot to speed it up. Nature actually does the regrowth process the best on its own. And so when I see a patient who comes in with this hair shedding from whatever it is, the first goal is to make sure we're not missing something else. And so do all the blood tests, do, a, do an examination and make sure we're not missing something else that could mimic this. Um, but then to help educate the patient. And so a patient who comes in to see me with shedding in August I'm going to tell them that September and October and November, these are going to be rough months. We're going to see a lot of shedding. Uh, You're going to feel like you're going to go bald. But I assure you, you're not. 
December, January and February of next year are going to be much better. And by spring and summer of next year, you're probably going to be back to normal and you're probably going to get your hair back. This is the most likely situation. So it's really educating patients, guiding them through this process, supporting them, making sure they have the supportive networks that they need to cope, but helping them realize that nature is going to take care of this and you're going to get your hair back even if you don't do anything. In the meantime, though, are you recommending that people don't uh, chemically treat, perm, dye their hair, things that people do to make themselves feel better, especially during the, the pandemic? My view is actually the opposite. My view is the hair is just shedding, but it's your hair and it's trying its best to grow. So wash it as often as you want. If you want to cut it, if you want to color it, if you want to dye it, go for it. It's not going to affect the long-term outcome. And so by cutting the hair shorter, it often weighs down the hair less, uh, makes it look less thin. Some people like to highlight the hair. That makes the hair look less thin. The more often someone washes the hair, the less they see every day. It doesn't get to accumulate. And so Mm -hmm. all these things can help people feel better about their hair while they're recovering. Dr. Donovan, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thanks so much uh, for, you know, shedding light on this. It's it's a new thing, the hair loss for a lot of uh, long hauler COVID patients. I really appreciate you um, giving us some insight into what's going on. Well, thanks so much, Kelly. Have a great day. That's Dr. Jeff Donovan, president of the Canadian Hair Loss Foundation. Just another thing to worry about. That's why you got to wear your mask. All right. um, The next two nights, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, are going to be your best opportunity to see the annual Perseid meteor shower. Here to talk about it, our uh, 640 Toronto expert in astronomy and professor at York University, friend of the show, Paul Delaney. Paul, welcome back. Good morning, Kelly. Good to uh, have you on. I get pretty excited. I'm, I'm slightly bummed that I decided to um, leave the cottage this week because this is going to be a, a great show. Can you describe uh, what we're going to see over the next two uh, nights? Absolutely. And yes, being at the cottage would have been a better place for it. But hey, what, what can we say? So the Perseid Media Shower is, in fact, the annual event where we end up with lots and lots of meteors streaking across the sky. And that, of course, basically means shooting stars. And these shooting stars are pieces of rock that are hurtling through space, passing through our atmosphere at tens of kilometers a second. And they basically disintegrate in a fiery display, which you and I can see from the ground from just about anywhere on the planet as long as it is cloud-free and dark. Any time after midnight is preferable on both Tuesday night and Wednesday night. And what you need, of course, is a reasonably good eastern, northeastern horizon, uh, as clear as it can be, free of trees, free of buildings, up to the zenith point. If you can get yourself nice and comfortable looking in that direction, be outside for at least 15, 20 minutes to get fully dark adapted, the show will start, as I say, just after midnight on both those nights. Okay, so when it is at its peak, how many meteors can you expect? How many wishes can you expect to place? <laughs> at least one a minute. Uh, now, obviously, if you're in a really bright sky, you're not going to see the fainter meteor streaks. You're not going to be able to see the fainter shooting stars. So if you're in downtown Toronto and you only count, say, 10 or 15 uh, per hour, Uh, So that's like one every three or four minutes. No hate mail, please, because it's the problem with the bright city lights. But if you were up in the the cottage area, 
the chances are really good that you'll see literally one a minute. That, that's how uh, prolific this display is. And this has been going on already. Um, it, it's been happening since uh, July 17th. It runs through the end of August. Um, but the next two nights are especially good. Why are the these particular evenings the best for viewing the uh, Perseid meteor shower? Well, the, the debris that we are passing through as a planet is the debris left over from a comet by the name of Swift-Tuttle. It disintegrated about a century ago now, uh, and it has created this, I call it a rubble trail. Uh, It's just this big debris field of material. But as you can well imagine, there is a portion, the centre of the orbit has the greatest density, the largest amount of material. And as you go further from that central line, the amount of material gets thinner and thinner and thinner. So it takes the Earth a period of time to pass through the entire width of the debris trail. But it peaks. We pass through the the densest part on the evening of August 11th, August 12th. So that's why the best two nights are the next two nights uh, to observe the amount of debris hitting our atmosphere. And doubly good this year, the moon is sort of out of the way. If you can observe the any media show, including the Perseids, with the full moon well out of your field of view, uh, then that's great. And, of course, that's the current situation. We're at about the third quarter phase at the moment, meaning that the night sky is not going to be awash with moonlight until you know early in the morning. And I know you can see these with the naked eyes, but would you be able to see more with the telescope? Like, Would you up your, your amount of uh, wishes, per se? No, because the field of view of the telescope is so much smaller. Meteors passing through our atmosphere, it's a bit of a random event. It's sort of, you know, you're throwing a whole lot of debris at the atmosphere, and depending on where you are and so on, will tell you how much you're going to see and where, which direction you're going to see it. So your naked eye is by far the best. If you're into photography, uh, you can open up the widest field of view of your camera and keep it open for, say, a few minutes to capture some of these streets, but literally getting comfortable, you know, literally, you know, a Shea lounge or some description, mm. if it's a little chilly, throw a little rug over you. If you've got a pot of hot chocolate in a thermos beside you, this is the sort of event where literally just relaxing and looking at the entire sky, look at the constellations. And then every minute or two, you're going to see a flash of light, a shooting star across the sky. So no, you're- no, no binoculars, even no telescopes. Based on the setup you just described, you are no novice at watching this uh, or other media showers. I've been up late on many, many occasions. There's no question you, about that. Do you ever get tired? Like, not not physically tired, but tired of it. You're like, oh, gosh, yeah, it's another shooting star. Every night, every every media shower is different. Yeah, you, know, you, know, you, you never know when that really great that really bright fireball is going to scoot across the sky. And that really gets mm. the heart pounding. I mean, seeing a, a little shooting star here and there, you're right, it can become a little bit oh ho-hum, but then you see a really bright one that lasts perhaps several seconds and it crosses over most of the sky. And maybe as it's burning up, it goes green and red because of the differing gases that are trapped within. Those are the moments you wait for and you go, ah, oh, I'm mm-hmm. glad I was here. <laughs> You know, Paul, I don't want to uh, question your authority as, uh, you know, the guy that knows everything about astronomy, but I do know when those um, major shooting stars will happen. It's always when I'm looking the other way. 
Because somebody goes, oh my gosh, did you see that one? It was crazy. Like it was the bright. And you're like, no, I didn't. I was looking that way. Yeah. So I kind right. of can time it. If if you yep. want to go uh, out with me one day and and watch a meteor shower, I'll just tell you, just look for me, look in the opposite direction and just crane your eyes in the other direction. And you'll see all the good ones. It's very true. It, it happens so often. And it's with my students, too. We'll be out as a group looking at these sorts of things if we can. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'll hear that intake of breath and I go, oh, damn, I'm looking in the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it happens to all of us, rest assured. <laughs> Paul, thanks so much. It's always a pleasure having you on the show and have a great night. You bet, Kelly. Take care. Cheers. That's Paul Delaney. He's going to be out stargazing over the next few nights. Of course, the best nights to see the Perseid uh, meteor shower tomorrow night and uh, Wednesday night. But we want to give you the heads up on uh, looking up just a couple of, you know, a day in advance so that you know what you're, uh, how you can plan your naps. It starts after midnight. That's your best viewing. So I want to take a little nap. Well, that's it for the Kelly Cotrera podcast. Join me weekdays, 9 till noon, live on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.